The 28 countries with forces in the Gulf area have exhausted all reasonable efforts to reach a peaceful resolution. Have no choice but to drive Saddam from Kuwait by force. We will not fail. As I report to you, air attacks are underway against military targets in Iraq. Good morning. President Bush announcing that the Allied military operation Liberate Kuwait has begun. These are the headlines at 7 a.m. today, Thursday, the 17th of January. Someone once said, if you don't tell your story, someone else will. I was eight years old when the first Gulf War took place in the United States. I watched on the sidelines as the land that I was born to went to war with the land that my parents were from. January 17, 1991, started out like any other day. My brother and I got home from school and unlocked the back door. I thought it odd that my normally lively household was so quiet. My parents often left the radio on during the day to keep burglars away, and I was often welcomed with wails from Whitney Houston or some other 70s or 80s song as I walked through the front door. The silence that day was a sign that foreshadowed what was to come. I was a naturally curious kid, so I proceeded to the answering machine, which had the cue I was looking for, a blinking red light. My eyes grew large in wonder at which aunt or cousin would leave a voicemail. I pressed play, and then I stopped, and then I pressed play again. I understand Arabic, and the voice on the other end sobbed, things are really bad here. I want you to know that no matter what happens, I love you and always will. Those were the words of my father's sister. I couldn't quite grasp the magnitude of that moment, but I knew it was bad. I felt heat around my heart and my throat that enveloped me like a fire ignited by gasoline. When my parents came home from work that evening, my normally light-hearted father walked down to the basement, took a chair covered with a Middle Eastern blanket, and placed it so close to the TV that I thought he would fall in. My father, a man who wears his confidence and joy so well that it was infectious, did not move for hours. I snuck a look at his eyes every so often and caught an unfamiliar feeling in them. Worry. The first Gulf War started that day in several major cities in Iraq, the Iraq that my parents grew up in. They would later leave for very different reasons, but they shared a common theme. Stay in a dictatorship and spend every day fearing for your life, or leave and hope for a better life elsewhere. Time seemed to stop that evening. The kitchen table, once filled with food and plates, looked suddenly barren and empty. I continued to watch, helpless, but I'll never forget the visuals on the news. Baghdad was being blown to oblivion. Every single bomb was a tidal wave of nausea that ripped through our household. Kaboom! One section of Baghdad down, another several to go. Was our family in that frame? Would our family still be alive the next day? How much more of the city would disappear? The colorful lights reminded me of the fireworks on the 4th of July that I honestly loved to watch so much in the summer, but 
Instead of celebration, there was nothing but sheer grief and shock as every colorful light lit up the night sky. My parents watched in horror as their past was wiped off from the physical plane. There was little that anyone said that evening, but I'll never forget the deafening silence. So much was said without words, and if the feelings in that room could talk, they would cry hard and loud, and the tears would become a tidal wave that would flood our entire neighborhood. I spent that evening alternating between watching the news and watching my father's face, intermittently holding witness to the destruction of a country and its people. Although I didn't feel the physical bomb from my safe neighborhood in the suburbs of Chicago, I felt that explosion in my inner world. A firework erupted in my soul that evening, and my heart cracked wide open, spilling onto the floor into a million pieces, like tiny red glass marbles. It would take me decades to piece it back together. After what seemed like an eternity of watching the news, I put myself to bed that evening, confused and shook. When my mother finally came up to sit by me sometime later, I asked, Mom, is our family okay? I don't know, Yas. I don't know, she responded and cried. The next morning, I was ready to go back to my normal life. My life was simple. I spent most of my spare time reading Jane Austen novels, playing soccer, and wandering aimlessly throughout my neighborhood, playing games with friends in the neighborhood, searching for adventure and for nothing and everything all at the same time. I knew that my parents were not from the United States. They had an accent and oftentimes stretched their vowels. And sometimes they just missed certain letters and words completely. (laughs) And they had a tendency to mistake singular words in the plural, but it hadn't dawned on me until one day that any of that mattered. The first bell rang and I ran to my first class. Mrs. Hopper, a curly-haired Italian, was teaching the first class. The other kids filed in, and I saw my best friend, Jessica, and we sat next to each other. During lunchtime, while I was having my turkey sandwich with some girls in my class, someone who always wanted the last word came up and asked smugly, "'Aren't you Iraqi?' His smug and defiant look gave me the chills, and I responded back, "'Yeah, I'm Iraqi.'" He triumphantly walked away, only to come back later with some other classmates. We're going to win the war and destroy Iraq and all those bad people. My dad told me about people like you. The girl sitting next to me looked confused and gave me a look in which I was to explain myself, but I couldn't find the answers. I went from shock to surprise to anger and then fear all in a matter of seconds. I had just visited all my family members in Iraq, and all I could think about was my aunt Shahrazad, who made me the most delicious meal made of lamb and pomegranate, or my uncle Fuad, who would play jokes on me any chance he had in order to make me laugh, and my cousin Ammar, who followed me everywhere I went and got so close to me that I often stepped on his shoes by accident. All of those bad people? Who is he talking about? I mean, surely he was misinformed. While my family was fraught with endless phone calls in the middle of the night from Baghdad, what I saw on the news couldn't be more different. I couldn't seem to reconcile these two worlds and was left feeling distrustful of the media and more open to the spectrum of opinions. 
I vowed never to take a media story as fact from that day forward. If they could be wrong once, then they could be wrong again. No, they're not bad people, is all I said. I mean, but what if he was right? How did I know? I had to ask my family. I had to ask my mom. I mean, why would America go to war with Iraq? There had to be a logical reason for it, right? My head was spinning by the end of the day and the nausea that overcame my household the night before returned, but this time it found its place in my belly and it stayed dormant for many years, reviving itself and awakening when anything triggered a reminder of the trauma from that moment, a word, a phrase, and everything in between. I didn't have the right toolkit to communicate what was happening, so anytime another classmate brought the war up, I sheepishly met them with a puzzled look on my face, trying to make it all go away, but I would continue to claim that my family in Iraq had done nothing wrong. When I walked back home, I hoped that my parents would shake off their sadness, and we would go back to our days filled with laughter. But the days that followed all felt the same as the first day. Every day, my dad's chair would inch closer and closer to the TV, and he would watch the news until late into the night. Even from my bedroom, I could hear the TV news anchor and the noise of the bombs. The fear of the unknown and my inability to make the sadness disappear made me feel powerless. I couldn't take away my family's sadness, and I learned how to quiet my own and walk on eggshells around my own emotional world. At first, I did everything I could to tell my classmates what was really happening in Iraq, but it was fruitless. I failed to win anyone over. My emotions had polarities. I would go from feeling withdrawn to feeling angry at humanity. How could the world justify killing millions of people, many of them civilians, many of them women and children? What kind of madness could permit such a thing? Once I realized that my expectations fell on deaf ears at the age of eight, I decided to keep my mouth shut about the subject of what was happening to my family and used humor as a primary way to communicate instead. I wanted so desperately to blend into the crowd and I amused that no one could get mad at a class clown. It was then that I would create a lightness around intense and difficult conversations and tread lightly around discourse. Humor and storytelling had a way of charming people, and I liked how all pre-existing narratives became secondary once an emotional connection and laughter was involved. But the story I would tell myself that day in 1991 would define me for many years to come. It would become a narrative that would change my perception and alter everything I understood about people and humanity and how I saw myself in this world. 